Thanks, Logan. So, welcome everyone. We are glad that you are here, and I'm not too sure exactly where you are in the in the walk, your spiritual walk. And and I know that again, uh, many times that we just want to acknowledge those who are uh, joining us. Uh, online, those numbers are kind of growing, and uh, it's kind of exciting to see how God is moving in our midst. and uh, And we want to continue to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And along those lines, I wanted to talk uh, about this. This is a sermon. You know, every once in a while, there's a pinpointed sermon where you're kind of speaking to a couple of people. I think this is this is one that speaks to every single one of us, uh, no matter where you are at and what you are going through. If you love Jesus. I believe that this sermon is for you, okay? So, and it, it centers around a, an important question, which is this. Um, what is your motivation? What motivates you? Like, what is it that caused you to get out of bed this morning and find your way into church? Or what is it that caused you to get out of bed and find your way onto the couch so that you could watch at least a service online? Was there something that, that, that is on you that says there is something that has to do? Perhaps it is the fact that this is something that you have doing. It's part of, part of your routine. It is part of the rhythm of your life. Maybe you were here because your mom pushed you out of bed and said, if you, if you don't get to church today, you are, uh, you're not going to eat lunch today. And so get yourself here. Now, if you are here for that reason, well, God bless you. I'm glad. God will still speak to your heart. I'm not too sure. There might be a number of reasons that we are. What is your motivation? What is the purpose that resides in you that makes you do what you do? Now, if you read the dictionary, motivation says this. It is the reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. What is it that activates us? What is the stimulus or the influence or the incentive that drives us? It's a good question to ask yourself. Every once in a while, we need to take an inventory uh, of that. Motivation not only reveals your purpose and your priorities, but it increases the intensity with which you do it. Isn't that true? That's very much true. Let me give you, let me give you an example. Now, my wife has had surgery, and as that is the case, I'm very much aware that, that if it is slippery, if it's snowing outside, she has to kind of use the walker still because she had this knee replacement surgery, you know, I don't want her to be able to slip or to fall. And so, so it's important that my driveway is, is cleared. Isn't that true? So if I were to say, listen, to the, the, for the, pers- the first person who comes up and, and volunteers or finds himself in my house, I will give $10 for the person who cleans my driveway. I don't know, there might be someone who, who would do that. But if I say to you, under the same note, Listen, I need my driveway to be able to be cleared. And I'm going to give $100,000 to the first person who cleans my driveway. Well, I think that there would be pandemonium right now. There would be people rushing out of this place to to do the driveway. There would be 90-year-old ladies in there walking, kicking people out of the way to try and get to my house. Money is a motivator, is it not? Or perhaps... My wife comes to me, and she looks at me, and she takes my arm, and she rubs my arm, and she looks, she looks at me with those deep blue eyes. Nobody has eyes that are more blue than my wife's. And she says, we don't need anybody to clean the driveway. Why don't you clean the driveway 
And afterwards, we can spend some time together. And she gives me that look. Well, I got my shovel in my hand. I'm running out there. Even if I've paid somebody 10 bucks, I said, get lost, kid. Here's your 10 bucks. Go, go clean somebody's driveway. I've got it from here. I'm shoveling here. I'm shoveling there. That is the cleanest driveway that you'll ever see. Intimacy is a motivator. And I say intimacy because I don't want to say sex. But, but you know, <laughs> these things are motivators. Pastor Mike, I'm seeing a side of you that I'm not really comfortable seeing. <laughs> this sermon has gotten off already so early in the sermon. What were to happen if, if all of a sudden someone were to knock on my door and say, listen, I see that you need, um, see that you need your driveway cleaned. And um, the truth is this, I haven't eaten for three days. And... Um, if I could just get a bite to eat, something that could keep me going till I get on to the next day, or I need a, bike, a, a bus ride uh, somewhere because something terrible has happened, I'm just willing to do something like that. You know, we, desperation is, is a motivator, is it not? We see pictures and hear stories of what is happening in Turkey, and there's rubble, and there's people underneath the rubble, and that brings about a thing which we call desperation. Desperation will no, motivate you the other thing is this, that if I were to sit there and say, listen, I need someone to, to, to help with my driveway because, because um, this is a serious situation and I'm willing to pay someone, there will be, I know for sure, there will be people who will come to see, listen, I don't need your money. Just let me do it for you. I realize that there's a need and I want to be able to help out. And there will be many people I know for sure in this congregation that would do that. Love is a motivator. I think love is the ultimate motivator, don't you think? The thing about love being a motivation is that love takes motivation out of your own backyard. Any other motivation that we have has a selfish ambition. It has something which is in it for me. But love takes us away from that dynamic and causes us to look at others despite what price we have to pay. And as a Christian, we are motivated. We are motivated by the love of God. We are, we are motivated by a desire to please Him. We are motivated by heaven and the fact that there is a heaven to gain. And we are motivated by the fact that God has done so much in our lives that we desire him to do the same thing in those people around us life. We want to share the gospel. And the gospel is this, that God is a loving God. But as humankind, we are locked in sin. It is impossible to save yourself. It is not a fact that I'm doing more good than bad, and when I get to heaven, the lot will show that I do more good things than bad things, therefore I'm going to make it to heaven. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are all sinners. The default is that we are all lost without God. And so what happens is Jesus comes as God in human form, dies on the cross to pay for that price, to pay for the price of your sin, and what you need to do is receive him, to give him your life. And that is the gospel. It's an important thing to understand, but we are motivated by that. As Christians, we are motivated. And as you grow in your faith, and as you become a, a passionate follower of Jesus in a daily way, what happens is you become to the point where your motivation is to do whatever you can to fulfill the purpose that God has for your life. That is the thing about our faith. When we ask Jesus into our heart, 
Our motivation goes from what is it that I can do for myself to what is it that I can do to please Jesus? What is it that I can do to serve him in a better way? It switches from you to God. So if you're here and you have lost your motivation, it is probably because you have lost your purpose or you have forgotten your purpose or maybe you have never even discovered your purpose or it may also be true that you are so discouraged and you are so depressed that you have abandoned your purpose. So the hope today is to encourage you, if I could, through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God to re-motivate you or to motivate you or to refocus the motivation back to God. And this is all based on the fact that truth, the truth of the Scripture screams out that every single one of us has something that God wants us to do. And we see it throughout the Scriptures that we are created for a destiny, that God has actually privileged us to be able to be part of His work. And sometimes we don't see it that way, but it is true. God has privileged us he has allowed us to be part of the process to love him and serve him the best way that we possibly can. And the Bible is filled with stories like these. And these are not, pe- these are not perfect people. Many times they are very much flawed people. Many times there are people who really wrecked things in life until all of a sudden God got a hold of their lives. One of those individuals is an individual named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah tells a great story. And if you have your Bibles or if you have your Bible apps or whatever, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to kind of go through the first chapter and give us a few details as far as that's concerned. The thing about Nehemiah is that he kind of sets a pattern for us that I think goes for all of us. When you stop and consider, and the next time you read Nehemiah, or maybe this afternoon if you have an opportunity in your devotional time, read the book of Nehemiah. It's not long. One what it does is it sets a pattern for us. Instead of sitting there and seeing this as the story of Nehemiah, see it as the story of you. Because all of us are Nehemiah. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had, been, that had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. And they said, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord God of heaven. Then I said, Lord The God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive to your, your attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayers of your servants praying before you day and night for, for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you, are, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you can return me and obey my commandments, then even if you are exiled people and are at the furthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. 
Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he ends by saying, I was the cupbearer to the king. What is the pattern? It's interesting because this is kind of Nehemiah's um, journal. It's kind of his life story, but it is the only part of the life story that he feels is important enough to share with you and me. Stop and consider, there's so much that I would like to know about Nehemiah. How did he get to the position that he was in? It would be almost impossible to get that, but somehow he is divinely put into this particular place. It doesn't tell us any of those details. But he is a Jew living in Persia who is in control at that time. And he only records this because I think it is the point which he sees as the most important work that he does in his life. It is about 440 B.C., now, at that time, the Jewish people had been exiled because Babylon came in. They kind of destroyed the place. They burnt down the temple, and they carried them away. God eventually judges Babylon, and the Persian Empire comes in. Now, for those of you who are kind of interesting, Persia at that time covered Iran, Egypt, Turkey, and parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Approximately 50 people, 50 million people were under their rule. At that time, there were about 112 million people living on earth at that time. So this kingdom encompassed about 44% of what was taking place of the world's population. Now, Nehemiah was a man of integrity. He had to be. In order to get into the place that he was, he had to be the most entrusted person in all of the kingdom. And so, so here he stands... In this position, 50,000 Jews had traveled back to Jerusalem because of uh, Ezra. And Nehemiah has a good life. Really, he does. Like, when 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 I was reading and studying the life of Nehemiah, someone said this. He was powerful, he was prosperous, and he was protected. He was what was known as the cup bearer to the king. And and we kind of think, cup bearer, well, that doesn't mean much. Probably got a whole bunch of cup bearers in the room. Hey, drink this. If he dies... Next, he's the next person. And sometimes we think that, but the person who was the cup bearer of the king at that time was the most entrusted person because you at that time were not voted off. You were killed off. That's how they had changed. That's, that's how things had happened. So he was probably the president of home security. He was the one who worked with the top people, the most trusted ones, to make sure that this didn't happen. He was, he was the one who was in charge of, of seeking out domestic terrorism and international terrorism against the king. And at that particular time, Artaxerxes, who was the king, his father was the king that Esther was married to. Remember the story of Esther in the Bible? So that king, as well as his brother Darius, were killed. And so here we up, and Artaxerxes is the, is the uh, I was going to say the pastor. He wasn't the pastor. He was the one who was leading it at that particular time. And so, so there's this place of influence where he is. And so what happens is that God begins to move in Nehemiah's life. But what are the steps? What got him to the place where he was this person in a nice, posh position to the person who is all of a sudden going to restore the temple at Jerusalem. And really, if he didn't, if he chose to stay where he was at, 
you would have never, ever heard of this individual. So let's take a look at some of the steps. The first step is this, if we could show it up on here. The steps that motivated Nehemiah were this. He saw the need. The first step was that he heard that there was something that was wrong. The walls are down, the, the, the things are ruined, and he, he became well acquainted with the need. The funny thing is, we see need all the time. But there's some things that stop us, isn't there? And there are needs that are within the church, and there are needs outside of the church, but we will probably never, ever experience a time where there isn't times where there are need. And what happened was it all starts with opening your eyes. It all starts with listening and not walking by. The realization that something needs to be done and that the situation is dire and that it will become a catastrophe if someone doesn't somehow get involved. He saw the need. The second one, I think, is interesting. Not only did he see the need, it says that he slowed down. Now, normally when we see a need, we jump on it right away. Our impulse is to do something. But in this particular case, the Bible clearly states that he did nothing really, or he didn't do anything particularly about the need. Basically, what it says is instead of speeding up, he slowed down. And the Bible uses terms like the fact that he grieved that he mourned. King James Version says that he lamented. Some really strong words to go to the most serious levels of intercession. Said that he fasted and he prayed for an experienced time. He allowed things to sink into his soul. Now I realize that certain things happen, we need to act right away. We hear of thousands of people dying and that many may still be under a pile of rocks, we don't sit there and say, well, let me pray about this, and let me get back to you in two weeks. There are certain things where we have to react right away. My question I had for myself this week as I looked at that, when has there been something that has been so close to my heart that instead of doing something right away, it caused me to grieve so much that I said, God, you need to do something about this. He slowed down. Then what he did was he, he sought the Lord. He, he looked to God. He began to pray. He sought the Lord. And in that prayer of all of, Acts, or of, all of Nehemiah chapter 1, he prayed the prayer. Most of, this, most of chapter 1 is this prayer. And if you, if you examine this prayer, it is unique. What he does is he reminds God, God, there is a covenant you are a God of love. And then he, what he does is he begins to repent. Lord, I will acknowledge the fact that we have done wrong. It's not like that you did this out of any kind of, any kind of nasty way. The reason that we are in the state that we are in is because we have not really obeyed what the word of God has said. But despite that, God, can you, can you work by your grace? Can you do something that will help us out? And so we see that that whole process which takes place in his life. And it causes me to realize that there are different types of prayer. Have you ever realized that, that there are different types of prayer? There's one that I will call exhaling prayer. The things that we pray out during the day, which are, which are important, but they seem to be part of the normal, normal pattern of our day. And it's not like they're any less important, but what they are. But there's also a thing that we will call, not exhaling prayer, but trevailing prayer. 
where all of a sudden we realize that the need is so, so deep and so important that we abandon everything else to begin to call out to God. And that leads to the other one, which is called prevailing prayer. Times when we see, when we pray through, when we see God do something about it. And the thing about this is, is, is funny is that Nehemiah was asking God to do something that God already wanted to do. Does that seem strange to you? I think God was trying to do something. It shows us the powerful things about prayer. That when you do pray in Jesus' name over the things that he wants to do, that God really begins to move. And that the prayer that was being, that was being happening through Nehemiah was not to change the heart of God. The prayer was to change the heart of Nehemiah and the people of God. He saw the need, it slowed down. He sought the Lord. He was stirred to do something. It was the process where God began to break his heart. Can I tell you something about our faith and uh, something that if you love Jesus with all of your heart, things begin to happen not when you feel bad. Things begin to happen when God begins to break your heart. What will be the thing that ruins your heart that will cause you to go and rebuild? Because that's what happened with Nehemiah. He saw the need. It ruined his heart. And he said, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to see what happens that I can do. He wasn't distracted. And if you don't allow God to break your heart, it will just be another thing in a list of needs and things which are there. What is it that wrecks you? What is it that breaks your heart? I always enjoy when Joy Smith and the Joy Smith Foundation comes to share every couple of years. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to hear Joy and, uh, and her ministry, she works primarily with the trafficking problem that happens in Canada. And so she sees what's happened. And being part of the government, she says, we got to do something about this. And she becomes the primary resource to deal with the problem of human trafficking. And when you hear about human trafficking, many of us, that goes to us, that gets us. The thought of people having to go through that is incredible. That is something that ruined her. That is something that caused her to do something of, of great worth to, to our community. The other one, the other one it, it, it might be is, is um, uh, Benita. Uh, Benita who, uh, Abrams, who, who we have often here. Every time Benita speaks, she always says this to me. You, you probably won't see me anymore. I'm going to die in Cuba. That's what she says. And so she is so overwhelmed by the grief of the problems of the pastors in Cuba and the fact that there are so many seniors who have had children who have abandoned them and they're just starving to death. And she's like, I got to do something. I can't just sit here. God began to break her heart and she devoted. She just left everything and she began to minister to the people. And many missionaries are the same way. I remember my father-in-law, who was a businessman for a number of years, still even till a couple of years ago, was, was part of the business world. He's 95 years old right now. And I remember him talking to me very deeply over the fact that there are so many businessmen that didn't know Jesus. And so he became part of full gospel businessmen. And he, he lamented over the fact that, that it was full gospel businessmen, but we weren't reaching businessmen. And, and, and there was this angst that he always came to, the fact that, that he wanted to reach people who were like himself, people who were businessmen, 
who God could somehow get into their hearts' lives so that they can somehow use the resources that they have to reach people, to make a difference in people's lives. Children's ministry. I remember Pastor Stephen. I was Pastor Stephen's youth pastor uh, 25 years ago, and I remember him going to Bible college and telling about this thought that he had. Let's train up kids. Send those kids throughout the country or throughout the province to be able to stir up their mentoring. And I thought, wow, that's pretty, it's pretty chancy. It's pretty hard to do that. Now, 25 years later, this, this year, this summer, every weekend, we have our children going to minister to people throughout the province. He says, I got one day off in July. <laughs> Something stirred his heart. I couldn't understand it at the time. But I'm glad, I'm glad he did that. I'm glad to see how God has, has developed the leadership skills of, of many of the young people that are in our congregation that will eventually become our board members and will eventually become our leaders in the church. You know, Paul, Paul when he's took, talking, or in, in, in the book of Acts, talks about his missionary journeys, he's talking about going here and there. And right in the middle of that, Acts chapter, after, Acts chapter 16, verse 9 says this, he says, all of a sudden in the middle of this, all of a sudden I get this vision of a guy from Macedonia crying out, we need you. So he stops the journey. He ends up going to Macedonia. The first European church in Philippi begins. It's crazy to hear the story and what had taken place. And I come to the realization that almost or probably all of us in one way or another has that Macedonian call. That time when God all of a sudden knocks on our heart and says, what about this? And the one that is for me is probably not the one that is for you. And it may be way out there, and I'm not too sure what it is. I remember a person, a mother coming to me, an older lady who was in her senior years, coming to me when I was a youth pastor here and said this, I want the names of every young person that is in this church. And if you could put an asterisk beside the kids that are part of this church who don't go to any church at all. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray for them every day. It's not like I don't like the kids who are already here. But they usually have parents and families that are praying for them as well. Who's praying for the kids? Who's praying for the young people whose, whose um, parents are not serving the Lord? There's no prayer happening for them. There needs to be somebody who prays. God stirred her heart to do something deeper, something, something fuller for her. What about William Booth and the Salvation Army? The dream that he had to reach the poor in Britain at that time. Take a look at the Salvation all started with a stirring of the heart. God saying, we need to do something. I had someone one time in my office said, who said this, Pastor, have you considered the fact that kids from the age of 18 to 25 choose a school, choose a career, buy a car, buy a house, choose a wife, choose a ministry, in those seven years, there's so much that happens and goes on. I don't know why I'm feeling this way, but I feel that I need to do something for young adults. God taking a look and stirring them and ruining them and the point that it goes to the point where we're not too sure. One of my closest friends was part of a ministry that traveled all across the country doing a drama. And he, he stops in a city that is outside of Toronto. And while he's there praying for everything that was going on, all of a sudden has this overwhelming burden of people crying and needing Jesus in this city. And so what happens is he says, I think I need to start a church here. He was 19 years old. And so what he does is he boldly goes before the district office and says, listen, support me in this. 
support me in this because if it's God, it's going to be God, then I will, I will do it. And if it doesn't fizz out to anything, then it was just me. So take a chance on me. And, and they said, no. You're crazy. You're just a 19-year-old kid. We're going to have a church in that city. And so what happens is he begins to pray, and God says, I'm just going to start anyways. A little bit at a time. First Sunday, you know, first Sunday is always a good one, right? You got all your supporters there. Second Sunday, I think he had five people. The third Sunday, he had zero. And then all of a sudden, he said, I'm going to do something. And it didn't happen overnight. He began to build relationships with unsaved people in that community. And they began to come to know Jesus. And he partnered with another church that was struggling. And they combined. And there's a huge church in that city today. Well, started with somebody breaking someone's heart. It leads us back to the thought is, what is God breaking your heart for? Perhaps it's people with addiction. Perhaps it's children. Perhaps it's youth. Perhaps it is something way out and you think that nobody even knows about it. Maybe you grew up in a situation where there was abused women and you want to minister to abused women. I'm not too sure what it is. All I know is that God, if you love Jesus, will probably stir your heart towards something. What is stirring you? What bothers you? What is the angst? What is the divine dissatisfaction? There are many needs. What is the one that gets you? We're stirred to do something. He sacrificed his comfort. You get a chance to take a look at the archaeology of the Persian Empire. You will realize what Nehemiah left. The Persian Empire, they say, was the third richest in human history. If you have an opportunity to go through some of the museums which have excavated some of the things in the Persian Empire, you will see some of the finest gold and silver and intricate statues and, and floor coverings. They had vaults that were filled with gold and precious stones. They had life-size statues and, and so many things that had on. And this was the lush, secure environment that Nehemiah was a part of. We never ever read anything in the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah hesitates and says, well, I had to choose whether I was going to actually leave all this or not. Just says that he did. Nehemiah had more for the good. He had a lavish lifestyle, but he came to a point where he had to choose between comfort and courage to choose between significance or security. And I think we are forced to ask ourselves the same thing. If there's one thing that I know about Christianity and faith is that it requires us to be uncomfortable. And that God moves to those times. One of the last steps is that he sets himself. He makes that statement I was the cupbearer to the king. What is that all about? Hey, you already told us right at the beginning that you were the cupbearer to the king. Are you bragging now? What is that all about? What happened was he had acknowledged in his heart that he was going to do something about it. What he was in actually saying, actuality saying, when he says, I was the cupbearer the cup, the cup to the king, is this. He says, I don't have all the answers, but I am going to move where I'm at. I'm not the architect. I don't know where the architect's going to come from. But what I am is I am the cupbearer. This is the point of influence that I have, and I'm going to use that influence. I'm not a carpenter. I don't know how to swing a hammer. 
I don't write up the plans. I don't do that. But what I am, I will use. I will start where I am to do whatever God wants me to do. And I will let God fill in the gaps as I go. I can carry and I can try and I can fail, but doing nothing is not an option. He wasn't going to let what he didn't know stop him from what he knew God caused him to do. Usually the heart goes from somebody ought to, to I ought to, to I'm going to. And the last step is this. He started. We don't read in chapter 1 about the I started. That is part of the rest of the story of Nehemiah. And if you have never read it, read it. If you read on, you'll see that he got everything he needed from the king. He went down to, to Jerusalem, and nothing happened that was, was out of the ordinary. Everything happened. It was just a wonderful experience for him. He built up everything. There was nobody going against him. There was no kind of problem. There was no kind of politics that were going on. It was, just, it was just a wonderful experience. He just went back to being who he was before. Really? No. He had criticism. He had attack. He didn't have attack from the people that he expected to have attacked. He had attack from people who he didn't expect to be attacking him. He faced danger. He went through times where he wasn't too sure what to do. And God saw him through it. You know, I, I, always, I always appreciate people saying, oh, God saw me through it. But when you are going through it, it's not so easy. God calls us to start no smooth sailing. If there's one thing I can guarantee you, in terms of the fact if you're going to do anything from Jesus, that in this world you will have tribulation. It's going to happen. I can guarantee you that. I often think of the book of Hebrews where it talks about all these great, great things that, of faith that people had done. <laughs> and then there's a spot, a chapter or two, that we, or a verse or two where it says some of these people never ever saw anything happen they just realized that they needed to start something and they didn't really see it finished until, until they were in heaven or after they were in heaven. And I guess you could say, I just want to fill a pew. But I think that God has us here for more than that. I think that God has called every single one of us to be motivated to move. What is your motivation? What is it that God is calling you to do? I come to ask myself a question, and I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit working on my heart or not, but I'll throw it out to you. Since when has church been about me? Since when has it been about me? I don't know if that's ever what church was intended to be. I'm coming here so that I make sure that my needs are, are together so that I can worship with people together so that I can feel good together with people. And I believe that there is something about that. We do get fed. We do enjoy the presence and, and, and opportunities to have together. But by far, the times where I enjoy church the most is when God calls me to something and I get in and I serve and I get to know people as I serve and I become part of a group where I love other people. And the payoff comes from the repercussions of following what he has called me to do. The repercussions of joy in the church is when you say, God, what is it? What is that one thing? What is that one angst that you're calling me to do? And in the process, God moves in my life and God moves in us as a church. So the question I have for you, and I'm not too sure exactly where you are, and I'm not even too sure if you know Jesus. Hopefully you do, and if you don't, 
We will lead you to God and to, to, to knowing him. Whether you're online or if you're here this morning, you want to know more about Jesus, this intrigues you, come talk to me afterwards. But what's the step that you're at? What is the place, what one of the steps are you at? Are you at the fact where you're just kind of listening? Are you at the point where God is stirring you towards something? Are you at the point where you're praying something through? Are you at the point where you are stirred so much that you aren't too sure what to do? Let me pray for you. Let me pray a blessing upon you that will cause you to say, God, I want to be where you want me to be. Can we do that? Let's stand together. I'm going to ask Pastor Glenn if he can come and, and play us out this particular time. Let me just say this as we, as we pray this prayer. I want these altars to be open to any need that you might have. But you might be here and there is something that is pushing you to say, I just need to pray. I just need for pray, God to somehow set a fire, a passion in me to give me a purpose that causes me to get up in the morning to make his kingdom a better place. God, I just pray for each and every person that is here, each and every mother who is carrying a child, each and every single person who is here, those of us in our senior years, those of us who have a family of three or four kids or whatever, those young people who are just starting out in their careers, those who might be in high school, those who are just trying to fight, figure out what their talent is and what they're wanting to do, God. I just pray the blessing of angst on our hearts. I pray for the blessing of discomfort upon our lives. That God, if we do not know what you have called us to do, that God, you will reveal it to us. That you have called all of us, Father, not just to kind of live out a life and make as much money as we can and, and make sure our family's comfortable so that we can go into our old age comfortable so that we can die happy. That's not what you called us to do. You called us to something greater. You've called us, Father, to do something great for you. And I don't even know what that area is for most people because, Lord, you break our heart at different levels. So I just call out to you, God, right now. Break my heart. Put me in a spot, God, where you want me to do something great for you. And I pray that blessing upon this congregation. It may seem to be a weird congregation, but life begins, Lord, when you pour into our hearts and give us the pleasure to serve you with all of our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to come to the altar.